Okay, great to be with you guys. Thank you so much. I just called Terry to say, hey, I'd love to see you. We were going to be in Southern California. And I um, just wanted to see he and Linda. I hadn't seen him in a while. And he said, well, why don't you just come and preach in the church? And I said, no, nah, you know what? I don't need to do that. I just want to see you guys. He goes, no, 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 come on in. You know, so I said, okay. Um, and then uh, Brian did an excellent job of filling me in on what you guys have been doing. Actually, I'm really excited about what you're doing. <clears throat> it's yeah, from what I'm, my understanding of it. If, if I'm wrong, correct me. But it's it sounds like it's almost a, 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 a biblical theology, kind of historical theology class um, or series. I guess you would say, getting an overview of all of Scripture and um, the history. Uh, it, it's it's actually it's 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 history from God's perspective, and and then the the question always is, um, what's exciting about that is that how our life fits into God's story, and that, that's really the key. And so, they've asked me to talk tonight about uh, Jesus, and uh, yeah, and uh, the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, how that fits into. This, this great story. Actually, it's, in many ways, it is the point of the whole story, isn't it? Yeah, the whole thing is really about him. It's all for him. It's all unto him. Um, and uh, so I, I'm just going to try to just, you know, in, in a few minutes, um, just bring my thoughts to it. But I'll, I'll start with Hebrews 1, if you have your Bibles with you or your phones or whatever you, you use to read Scripture. This morning, Kath and I went to, uh, our daughter lives in um, Orange County, um, Mission Viejo, Ladera Ranch, close to San Clemente area. And we went to a church, it was a, it's a, a, a branch of one of the mega, Orange County mega churches. Quite a different experience from this. <laughs> and... Uh, I have to say, I think I prefer this in many ways. Um, not to be critical in any sense, but, I, you know, I think we're all hungry for reality in, in what this means to follow Jesus, what this life is about. And I think, you know, the longer you walk with him, the more you hunger for that reality, the, lo- the more you hunger for something that has something of it that is real and tangible in this faith. And um, I know that's where we are in our lives. That's what we're hungering for in our church. And, you know, we're actually doing something very similar in our church. We're at, we have what we're doing is a year of biblical literacy. And uh, it's a whole, um, actually a ministry uh, that was developed by some guys, I think, in Portland called Bible Project. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of it. Yeah, you've seen it. And they don't do all the material. They have the apps that you read along for the year. So we're doing that, and we're preaching through the whole Bible in the sense of the, the major themes of Scripture for this year. And then we're reinforcing it in our, our home groups and things like that just to bring it all home. But um, it's been really, really good for our church, too, just to get this bigger context, you know, of what this is all about. Let me read in Hebrews 1, because I think this is kind of the point of all we're going to talk about today, in a sense. Um, beginning with Hebrews 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And Lord, I pray that through this time together that the excellency of Jesus would shine forth into our hearts, into our minds, into our beings. We pray that Jesus would be at the forefront today of our hearts and minds, as he always is. But today we give special attention, Lord, to just meditating, thinking upon, and pondering and worshiping around the truth of all who Jesus Christ is, Father, your Son. Thank you, Lord, for redemption. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you for the privilege of living for you in this day. And so we just give this time to you now, Lord, in the name of Jesus, Father. Amen. So if I could just briefly give a context for what I want to talk about. And some of this is, I'm sure, going to be repeat or review for you guys in terms of what you've already been hearing the last few weeks. But the Bible begins, as you know, with the creation of all things. And it ends with the renewal of all things. And in between of the creation of all things and the renewal of all things, it offers an interpretation of, I believe, what is the true meaning of history. And the biblical story is the only story that explains the things that were, the things that are, and the things the way they should be, and things the way they will be, the way they were when God created it, the way they are because of the fall, the way they could be due to redemption, and the way they will be because of new creation. And so we find this great narrative in, in the Bible and in Scripture, and it makes this comprehensive claim on all humanity, calling every human being to find their place in its history. That's the goal of God in his heart is that every man and every woman and every child would find who they are in God's story. The thing that's sad to me about our time in which we're living and leading in the church in 21st century America, California, is that this comprehensive great narrative has been neglected. Uh, And it's been neglected, I think, for many reasons. First of all, because we've dissected and compartmentalized the Bible And in doing that, we've lost sight of the overarching story. We've broken it into little pieces. And a good example, and this is not a bad thing, but it's just an example of what we've done, is Sunday School for Kids teaches little compartmentalized stories about Jesus or about the Bible, oftentimes in in most churches, without ever connecting them to the greater story of why these stories are important. And so, but the sad thing is that not only have we done it in Sunday school with children, we've done it in our churches with adults. And we teach this, this almost it's just this truncated understanding of the truth um, instead of teaching this great story as it all connects together. 
And so as a result of that, the, the bits and pieces of the Bible that we've broken it into are absorbed into the prevailing cultural history that we're living in. And that then begins to supplant the Bible as the story um, which should shape our lives. Instead, culture shapes our lives, and the Bible just kind of fits into our cultural understanding. And the Bible never is able to shape our lives. Culture shapes our lives. And you don't have to look too hard at the church today to see that it is not the Bible, unfortunately, that is mostly shaping lives, but it is culture. And I really believe that only a unified biblical narrative really has the authority to enable us to withstand the, the competing humanist narrative that is presently and always shaping the culture in which we live. The Bible refers to it as the spirit of the age, does it not? And that's what shapes our culture. And if the Bible has, doesn't have an impact on us from its larger scope, its larger understanding, the story of God, then, then we only are being shaped, I, I, I fear, by, by the culture. Another reason why this great narrative, I think, is neglected is because it's politically incorrect. Uh, not because it tells the wrong story, but because it tells a story, and it claims to be the most important story. And that is not acceptable in our society today. It's not acceptable that there would be one story that is above all other stories. We live in a very synchristic society, and everything has to have its, uh, you know, everything has to have its equal opportunity. And that's not true of the Christian story. The Christian story is the story, and and therefore it is not politically correct. And so we know that this story, this this narrative of Scripture, is perceived as exclusive, and intolerant, and not relevant in 21st century America. But we need to understand it, man. One of the reasons that we have to have a biblical worldview, we, we must begin to see th things increasingly through the lenses of Scripture. And we know everyone has a worldview. Everyone has a worldview. Even people who are not Christians, we just are not, not in touch with it. But unfortunately, most believers don't have an understanding of a Christian or a biblical worldview. And so we have to begin to see our lives today through the lenses of what's true from God's perspective, not from ours and not from man's. So the storyline of the Bible is, is crucial because it helps us to think as Christians that are being formed by this truth that is God's truth about our world. So we view the world through the lenses of God's truth. Now there's going to be disagreements on how that applies. We know that. But we know that the Word of God is the truth. And so the more that we have that lens and that understanding of what is true, then we're going to have opportunity to be shaped by it and to have communities that are being shaped by it and not by culture, and not by what is prevalent, even in the church and its culture. And so we're going to then need also to be able to, to recognize and reject <clears throat> false worldviews. I don't know if you guys have heard of this term, moralistic therapeutic deism. Have you heard of that term? 
it's a it's a very common now uh, it's a term that's being used to describe what's happening in 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 America really in the western world predominantly moralistic therapeutic deism three big words that sum up five beliefs listen to them the first is that a god exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth that's deism there is a god who exists people believe who created and ordered the world and then just kind of watches over it from a distance deism doesn't do much in any way of intervening in human affairs just kind of sees what's going on and generally has just views it from that distance god wants people to be good and he wants them to be nice to one another even as taught in the bible and by most religions in the world teach you that God wants you to be good and to be nice to each other. That's the moralistic part. That's the moralism. The goal of religion from man's perspective is to be nice, to be a moral person. The third belief is that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic aspect of it. The most important Thing in life is to be happy and to be well balanced is being propagated today and we know that life is not always happy and we know that we are marred human beings and we are in the process of being healed by the Lord Jesus Christ but the gospel is not therapeutic and the world today that's what the world wants us to believe is that that is the goal of religion moralism a deism that's distant and a therapeutic understanding of truth and of life and of course then the, the goal and the conclusion is that good people will go to heaven when they die good people will go to heaven when they die and so salvation is accomplished through morality moralistic therapeutic deism or moralism and our society is awash with this worldview and even churches are filled with people who believe who believe that but when we start to see the story of God from that larger perspective you see that that just is not even true from God's perspective those things are not true so we have to understand the gospel rightly and we have to understand what the components and the truth of the gospel is and how the gospel fits together with this great narrative. And I think oftentimes we jump, uh, we think of the story of the gospel as a story that jumps from the Garden of Eden, where we've all sinned, right to the cross, where Jesus fixes everything. And in a sense, that may be true, but in another great sense we know, as you guys have been studying, that's not true at all. There's a lot that takes place in between that begins to uh, un unravel and unlock and, and uh, un un peel out down the layers of all the truth of Scripture. And the goal of this is to keep our, our focus on Christ. And what I want to just talk to you about today for a few minutes is three main themes that I think we find in Scripture that relate to the person of Christ particularly. There are many themes in Scripture, as we know, but I think these might be three dominant ones. The kingdom, the temple, and the lamb. The kingdom, the temple, and the lamb. Of course, sub-themes sub would be the faithfulness of God, the love of God, uh, the compassion of God, the holiness of God is hugely important. Uh, 
the justice of God. All of those are, are important themes that you would study and know in Scripture as well. But I think three main themes in Scripture, especially as it relates to the person of Christ, are the kingdom, the temple, and the Lamb. And I just want to talk about each of them briefly today and then how that applies to our lives and to who we are. The kingdom. I was telling our church last week, I, 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 in, in my teaching now, as we're going through the Bible and, and the major themes, we're, I think we're reading now, we're in Second Kings in our reading now. We began in January and we're reading through daily. And now I think we're in Second Kings. And so when you get to the Kings, you encounter for the first time now the story of Kings of David and, and Saul and David and Solomon and then all of his sons and then as the kingdom split and the kings that followed after that. So there's a huge transi transition in scripture from the judges to the kings. And, and there's a huge change in, in the narrative of what takes place in the nation of Israel. And I was telling our church last week as I was teaching on, uh, on uh, Out of Kings, that I've had an understanding of the kingdom of God from my history. I was, Kath and I were, were born, uh, born again uh, out of Calvary Chapel and then born into Vineyard. And so we were part of the Vineyard for uh, 20 years, maybe not quite that long, 16, 17 years. And planted two churches that were Vineyard and traveled as Vineyard and taught all Vineyard all kinds of vineyard things, and it was wonderful. There was a lot of excellent history in it. But I've thought now through the last five years, I had to rethink a lot of my theology. And I came to the conclusion that my understanding of the kingdom, though I'm really grateful for much of it, um, the, the concept of, of the kingdom here but not yet, George Eldon Ladd, if you're familiar with him, that all of that truth has really impacted my life, and I'm thankful for that. But I, I had a tweak in my theology regarding how the kingdom is now to be lived out for us, especially in terms of its authority and, and ministry and application. Because we almost moved out in the vineyard into this, almost into a, um, not a dominionist theology, but a, um, a, a kingdom now sort of theology, but more of a, uh, uh, where y we have the power to speak things into existence kind of theology. And it came sincerely out of a desire to see people get healed, people get well, people get become whole, you know, to lay hands on and see them something happen. And we were, you know, prayed for lots of people. But I realized that my theology had been marred through a, an improper understanding of what Jesus came to bring when he came. And, I, and I've had to rethink all of this. But the kingdom is a hugely important theme in Scripture. And I believe that the kingdom of God has to be understood today in the churches that we're a part of so that we can teach it with authority, with, with confidence, and with faith. A lot of the guys that I'm hanging out with um, who are more of a Reformed bent have no understanding of the kingdom. None. It's surprising to me. They don't ever think about the kingdom. They refer to it, but they don't understand it and they don't teach it. Um, and I think we have to regain an understanding of the value system and the ethics and the lifestyle of the kingdom and teach that again in our churches. 
um, without what I feel was some of the things that I personally had embraced that were off. So I'm, I'm saying all that to say I'm rethinking a lot of my theology regarding the kingdom, but it is a really, really important subject in Scripture. And it begins as early as creation itself. The creation story was the, manifold, the, the, the visible manifestation of God's glory on earth. It was God's, it was as it was in heaven, was on earth in creation. And that's what Jesus taught us to pray. That's what took place during, in the creation of the earth. And, and when God created, it was heaven had come in, into a very tangible physical realm to be experienced and to be visible and to be known. And God himself was in that realm walking with Adam, with man in the garden. And we know that man was given dominion in the garden. And it was, it was the dominion of an earthly kingdom that was to show forth the glory of God. So the kingdom is as early as the Garden of Eden. And of course the fall and its impact is multiplied in sin throughout, throughout then the fall and then its subsequent uh, ramifications are multiplied and they lead to not only the demise of man but also to all of the created order. And the result, and this is kind of what you guys have been, think, I think, talking about, is that it, it marred the glory of God that had been revealed through the kingdom reign of man. The goal of God in creation was that heaven would be visible and be experienced by his, the climax of his creation, which was man. And the glory of God would be known in that garden. God himself would fellowship with man the presence of God would always be present to them. And then through sin and the fall, not only was sin's effects multiplied through death and all that happened in the demise of creation, but probably more importantly, the glory of God was lost and at least greatly marred in creation. Of course, it's not lost completely because Paul tells us in Romans 1, does he not, that every man is without excuse because in, through creation they can see that there's a creator. Are you with me? So the biblical story traces God's plan to restore his glory. And see, this is, I'm going to stop for a moment, pause there and say this. See, the, the story is not about us. It's about him. Of course, the story is for us. Of course, we are the amazing benefactors of this gracious God. But ultimately, and this is a key in my mind to this story, and even as we talk about the Lord Jesus in a minute, just specifically, it's not for us and about us. It's about God. It's about Him. And it's to restore the glory of God in His creation. And then the effect of His glory upon creation. And thank God one day that will be fully restored. Amen? And when all of creation is renewed, when the new earth is brought forth, and the, and the, and, and the light of God is, is ever-present again with, with man, so the biblical story traces God's plan to restore his glory um, in his creation. And as is always true in scripture, when we're talking about this story of God, he always begins with a man. 
He always begins by calling a man. It's amazing. I'm using that generically. But he called, he always calls a man to himself. And we see that with, it's true with, with Abraham, of course Noah and his family, and then Abraham, and David, and finally with David, there's a foreshadowing of God's kingdom again. And the kingdom of rule and reign of David was a, was a, was a picture, a shadow of the reign of God again on earth through a man. And there's a text in, in I think it's in 1 Samuel, that says that there was, maybe Second Samuel, there was peace through David's reign. It's, you can see this, this picture of, of the peace of God through the reign of David as a, as a foretype, a foreshadowing, a type of the reign of the peace of Christ as, as, as he would come, Emmanuel, God with us. And so though God has always been a, a sovereign king over all of the universe, he's always intended that man would in, extend heaven's rule on earth. So let me say that again. Though God has always been the sovereign king over all, his intention has always been that man, man, would extend heaven's rule on earth. This is the key to the kingdom. The key, the key to our thinking of the kingdom is that it's been God's intention that man would extend heaven's rule on the earth. And we've been given that dominion. And that's what we have to unpack in our theology, in our studies. What does it mean to extend the kingdom of God on the earth? That's the question that I've been struggling with in my own thinking in the last few years. It doesn't mean that everybody I pray for is going to get healed. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to have an easygoing life, obviously. But it does mean, and this is Francis Schaeffer's words, there is substantial healing through the gospel of Christ to every part of mankind's to all of our being there is substantial healing that comes through the gospel so the first theme is that of the kingdom and that's a huge theme that needs to be unpacked and needs to be studied and needs to be uh, preached and needs to be taught and needs to be thought through carefully a second main theme is that of the temple the garden was the first temple and the goal initially of the temple is that's where God and man would meet. Where God's presence would be manifest. Where God's presence would be tangible in the temple. And the garden, in a sense, was the temple. It's where God was worshipped and God was, man and God met. And then, of course, after the fall and man was cast out of that temple, of that garden, then it, it became, the temple was found in a Tent. The tabernacle became the temple in the wilderness. But access to it was limited. Only a few men could enter that temple. And then only through sacrifice. Because man, fallen man, sinful man, would die in the presence of the holy God with whom he at one time had walked in the garden, with whom he at one time had fellowshiped with in that garden that was the temple now it was in a tent the tent became the temple and then Solomon built a temple David wanted to build it and God wouldn't let him Solomon built it we know the story and it was glorious in every way 
it was so glorious that after it was destroyed and they began to rebuild it after the exile, old men who had seen the former temple wept as the foundation was laid for the new temple because of the glory of the temple. And the glory of the temple was that once again for Israel, God would dwell in their midst. Now follow the thinking here. The temple where God, once again, the Israelites could meet with God after the temple had been destroyed by Babylon and they rebuilt it again. And the men, old men wept. Not just because the temple was being built, I think, but I think because they knew that's where they would meet with God. But we know that that temple, as glorious as it was, was insufficient Paul would say hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So the temple has always been this major point of reference between man and God throughout Scripture, and a major theme as it relates to the person of Christ. And of course, you'll easily, you you already know why that's true. A third major theme, it's the garden, it's the temple, is the the, the theme of the lamb or the sacrificial lamb. And that theme is throughout scripture and that theme always relating to the need for redemption, the need for forgiveness, the need for atonement. The lamb is found as early as Genesis 3, when Adam in his nakedness is covered by God through sacrifice. An animal is killed, and the skin of the animal is given to Adam and Eve to cover them in their nakedness. And so we see the sacrifice is initiated as early as Genesis chapter 3. It doesn't say what kind of animal was killed. But there was an animal that was sacrificed. Abel, one chapter later, presents a sacrifice to God that was accepted by God. Was it because of Abel's faith that it was acceptable, or was it because it was a sacrifice? I think it was both. A lamb had to be sacrificed, and its blood put over the door in Egypt so that God, so the angel of death sent by God would pass over the Israelites that night as judgment comes to the nation of Egypt. Sacrifice. And atonement is made, and I'm amazed as I read through the Old Testament how many animals they sacrificed. I mean, how many animals were killed? How much blood was shed? How much blood was poured? I mean, we were talking about this in the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. had to have been covered with blood. The, 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 all the side, they threw the blood everywhere inside that tent when they made the atonement. And so many animals, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals. But it's amazing because the book of Hebrew tells us this, that all of the blood that was shed by all of those sacrifices never dealt with the issue ultimately, which was what? The conscience. It was never able to clean the conscience of man. Yes, it covered sin for a season, Paul tells us in Romans, but it was never able to deal ultimately with the issue 
that man struggled with, which was the conscience. And so Paul says now, thank God, in the book of Romans, our conscience has been cleansed. And Hebrews says our conscience has been cleansed, having been sprinkled with the blood of Christ. So the sacrificial lamb is foreshadowing, obviously, the person of Christ. And that's what I've been asked to talk about today. And in all those, we see Christ. And in so many other ways in the Old Testament. And I think this is one of the reasons why I love Scripture so much is because it all fits together. It's brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. The plan of God is brilliant. And the, the logic of it, and the, it's just amazing, the wisdom of it, and how God did everything that he did, and how it all culminates in his son. The garden, the temple, and the lamb, or the history of Israel recorded from Genesis through Malachi, and then 400 years of silence. 400 years. Now, there was a lot that happened in those 400 years. It's really interesting, all the things that took place. Aristotle, his studies took place at that time. Alexander the Great um, conquered the world, as it was known at that time, in preparing, really, for the coming of Christ, is what he was doing, by, in, in the sovereignty of God. In the, in the history of Israel, the Maccabees and all that took place those warriors. There's a lot that happened in those 400 years, but there was silence from God for the people of God until J the B shows up. John the Baptist, and these are the words of John the Baptist. Silence from God until we hear these words. This is what John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is what blew my mind as I was thinking about this in the last few months, is that you have this story of Israel, you have this history of Israel from Genesis all the way through recording the history. And suddenly, after 400 years of silence, listen to this, listen, God enters the story of man personally. See, the history of Israel, God is, is, is not... He's, he's present through all that they were doing, and, and at times we would meet face to face with Moses, amazing times of like, things that he would say that God would come and speak to him face to face. Of course, the presence of God was manifest at times in the tabernacle and in the, in the temple. As Solomon dedicates it, the glory of God shows up. But something changed when Jesus came because God actually entered the story of man personally. It's amazing. Think about it. In Christ, God entered man's story. God entered man's story. In the person of Christ. And the Father sent his Son. And there's a, there's a, theologically, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a belief, there's a covenant that God and Jesus made, the Father and the Son made in eternity. The, the covenant of redemption. Where the Father said to the Son in all eternity, before the world was created, Son, you must enter their story. And the son said willingly, and we know that he did it willingly, Father, I will. 
And Paul speaks of it in Philippians 2 when he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ becoming a man, emptying himself, taking on the form of a bond slave. And not just a slave, but even under the point of death. So this is an amazing story where in the heart of God, it was always in the heart of God that there would be redemption. Now, I don't understand that. That, 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 you know, that brings up thousands of questions in my mind. Well, God knew that man was going to sin, and you know, and da-da-da-da-da. You know, all those old arguments that we go through in our finite minds trying to understand an infinite God, which we can never do. But Christ is called the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. In his heart, in his will, he gave himself to it. Jesus is the Lamb of God who made atonement for sin once for all. He is the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God who made atonement for sin once for all, for all who would believe in him. Through the blood of Christ and through the the sacrifice of Christ and through the torn flesh of Christ, the veil between God and man was torn. And through faith in Christ, through faith in Christ, and if you're here today and you've not put your faith in him, know that this is what's true, that through faith in Christ, reconciliation has been made between God and man. That God and man have peace with one another again through the blood and through the sacrifice of Christ, which has always been the goal of God in his heart, is to bring, once again, reconciliation. The temple, as the garden was, where God and man fellowshiped. In Christ, a man became, listen, the temple of God. It's pretty. That's the uh, like five minute warning. <clears throat> it's like, dude, you're about you should be about done now. <clears throat> Let me say that again. In Christ, a man became the temple. There's a garden. There's a tent. It was a building, and now it's a man. John writes in John 1.14, The Word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. And in Jesus, the kingdom of God has invaded this present evil age. Because God has entered man's story, now our lives find their meaning in him. One of the things that's really impacted my life, and I think Terry and I have talked about this, you know, is this thought of new creation. Um, Not only is it to come, but it has come. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that for anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, all things have become new. Jesus is called the firstborn now of many. In fact, in Revelation chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ calls himself, verse 14, the beginning of the creation of God. That Jesus is the beginning of the creation of God. I thought about that for the longest time. What does he mean he's the beginning of the creation of God? I know that through Christ, Paul tells us in Colossians, all things were created. 
But why does Jesus say in, in Revelation 3 that I am the beginning of the creation of God? Well, I think the Lord Jesus was saying is I am the beginning of the new creation of God. Christ is the firstborn of many. And that's us. And so now we, through the sacrifice of the true Lamb of God, have become, listen, the temple of God, we, in order to extend the kingdom of God. So the, the, the biblical narrative, which points towards Christ from beginning to end, and in the, the major themes of Scripture, for sure, all summed up, Paul says in, in Ephesians 1, everything is summed up in Christ. That's the goal of the Father and the Son, is that all things would be summed up in Him. But the amazing thing, listen, is that not only are they summed up in Christ, but He's the firstborn of many. And so He's a prototype. I was running one day a few years ago when I could still run. I got a bum knee now and I can't run. I was running one day and I was listening to uh, U2 and that song Bono was singing. The first of his kind. I forget the name of the song. But there's a line that says that. And I brought to mind Romans 8. Turn with me to Romans 8. Let's look at it. I know I haven't used the scripture a lot today and I, I apologize for that. But the, the way that this played out, the theme of it, I just... I've, I've referred to it a lot. Hang on a minute. Let me find it. I didn't write it down. What's that? No, no, it's not that text. It's not that one. Yeah, it's following that one, though. It's following that text. Verse 28. And we know that those, for those who God loved, all things, who, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's still not the one I was thinking of. That's all right. My point is simply this, is that Jesus is a prototype. He's the first of his kind. He's the first man, listen, 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 he's the first man who was the temple of God. He's the first man who once again brought the reality of the reign of God, the kingdom of God, who brought a visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. Not only that, but, but we're told by Peter that we're supposed to enter into the sufferings of Christ. Now, they're not redemptive sufferings, as were his. But the lifestyle of a Christian, the, the, the experience of a Christian, is, is cross-like. It's sacrificial. 
So not only is he the lamb and is he the garden and is he the temple, but we're called. And now that's because he's the first of many. We're called now to live sacrificially, to lay down our lives for one another. No greater love has a man or a woman. We are now, Peter says, as living stones being built together, what? Into a what? Holy temple. Holy dwelling place. Are you guys following me? And then we know individually that we are what? Indwelt by God. God lives in us. We are now the temple. And so Paul actually says that in, in 1 Corinthians when he's admonishing them about sexual sin. And it's, what it, the, the grief of it is is what it does to their bodies, which is the, are the temple of God. And not only are we the temple, but we are now given authority because of the sacrifice and because of who we are on the earth as the temple of God. Listen, to extend the rule and the reign of God. To bring an understanding of what it looks like, what God is like, of what the lifestyle of, a, of what it, heaven is like. Jesus said, pray. Lord, that, Father, your will would be done in, on earth as it is in heaven. So it's all about Christ. It all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also that the glory of God that's been marred through sin would be restored. But beyond that, our lives find their meaning in that story. That's where we find our true purpose in life, our true meaning in life, is in the great, great story of God. And, and so Paul and, and the other apostles who totally understood this and laid it out for us in Scripture and began to teach what it means to be a new creation, what new creation life. You know, new creation life, so many Christians live on, on this side of the cross, kneeling before it, aware of, of their need for forgiveness and aware of the great grace offered at the cross. So many Christians, though, stay on that side and they never walk beyond it to live their life beyond the cross in the life of new creation. And that's what the whole New Testament is about. The whole New Testament is about the life of new creation. Discipleship is, is transformation into new creation from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. That's the Christian life that we are to live. And we live that life in community, we live that life in families. And if you're not yet married, you are part of the family of God. You live that life in community. And if we are married, our families are part of that community. And that community, individually, they're, 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 each of these communities are little temples. The local church is a dwelling place of God where God meets with man. And then the church at large is the temple of God on the earth. living sacrificially, extending the reign of God, however we can, in every context we can. The ethics, the lifestyle, and the value system that we live by. And it's upside down compared to the world, is it not? So we're, we're walking, Tozer says we're walking with our face in the wind. And the wind of hell, the wind, the wind of the earth is blowing toward hell, and we're walking against the wind. And it's all about Christ. What a blessing, huh? 
Man, I'll tell you, being a Christian is an awesome thing, guys. It's, I know you know that. It's a glorious truth. And I just pray that the church will, in America, the church in California, the church in um, Southern California, Northern California, this local church, my local church that I'm part of, that we will grasp these truths, that they will more and more shape our lives, and that our lives will make a difference because they'll have meaning in light of what's necessary the world we're living in today. Amen? Amen. Father, thanks. We love you so much. And thank you for this church. Thank you for their faithfulness and their love for you, their sincerity. I'm always struck by the sincerity of this people. For Terry and Linda and those that they walk with, friendship, I pray your blessing. Pray for revelation. Pray for strength and encouragement. I pray for wisdom in the days ahead. I pray this church would make a difference for you. You always begin, Lord, by calling a man and then a people. And you're at work, and I thank you for that in this community. And I bless them. And we do love you, Lord, and we're grateful for what you've done for us in your Son. In Jesus' name, Father, amen. Amen.